This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Heavenly Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give to us. And what we are not, please make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. We come today to the ninth chapter of Hebrews. We're on a journey through the letter of Hebrews. This is the most difficult chapter in the letter. I was visiting a Bible study group this week, and somebody in the group said, this is a very difficult book, isn't it? And I waited for the other members to say, but you're explaining it extremely well. (laughs) But everybody in the group looked at me like week by week I was doing root canal therapy on them. And so I want to begin by saying to you that if you miss everything this morning, this chapter would make a really meaty Good Friday sermon. This chapter is basically about the cross of Christ. And it's not just what he has done for us, it's what the believer gains by believing in Jesus Christ. The benefits of his death are very real. And I promise you this if you're a Christian, you will never, ever, ever stop being thankful for the cross. The dimensions, the blessings, the benefits, the consequences of this death of Jesus for you will never, ever come to an end. You will increasingly, exponentially be thankful for the cross, I promise you. And um, if you can think, for example, of a relationship in your life which is extremely difficult, you know the sort of relationship where you've got to be on your toes all the time. Then go to the other end of the spectrum. Think of the relationship in your life which is an absolute pleasure. The person is easy, even, uncomplicated, wonderful. Now multiply that second relationship by a million and you are getting towards the relationship that Christ has opened up for us to have with him. And the more we get to know the reasons that we have the relationship, and there's a lot of good reasons in Hebrews chapter 9, the more we will appreciate the privileges which we have been so wonderfully given. So I want to ask you, work with me for a few minutes on the argument of the chapter, and then you'll see the conclusions and all the joys that come from this gift of Christ on the cross. So it's on page 1189, if you'd like to turn it up in your Bibles. I'm going to look at it this morning uh, as if we're watching a short film at the front of the church, and the film has got five scenes, and each of the scenes corresponds to about five verses in the chapter. So scene one, roughly verses one to five, scene two, verses six to ten, etc., Scene 1, Hebrews 9. This is a photo of the Old Testament tent or tabernacle. You know, in a documentary, you may be staring at an old photograph for quite a long time, and this writer provides a photo of the Old Testament tent or tabernacle. You remember that he's trying to make sure that his readers, and that includes us this morning, don't go back into the Old Testament. You know there's a lot of Christian churches that are going backwards into the Old Testament. They're setting up a temple and a priesthood and sacrifices. That, of course, is to go backwards. No, the writer wants 
his readers, all Christian people, to say goodbye to that and to go forward to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament. So he offered himself the complete sacrifice. He entered into the temple of heaven, and he is the one who is now the only priest we need. He is the prophet. He's the king. He's the one who is really able to provide our needs. Now, to prove the sequence from tent to heaven, the writer begins the chapter with the tent in verses 1 and following. Well, look at verse 2. A tabernacle was set up. A tabernacle or a tent was set up in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. They would meet around it in their thousands, and in the middle would be the tabernacle or the tent. And we're told in these verses in 1 to 5 that the tabernacle or the tent had two rooms. There was the holy place, and one of the things that was in the holy place was the famous Jewish lampstand. You've all seen that lampstand with seven branches. And then, of course, there was the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. That's the second room. And inside the most holy place was the altar and also especially the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box, a gold-covered box. It was not all that big, maybe a metre by half a metre by three-quarters of a metre. And um, above it were two cherubim like angels with their wings nearly touching. And that was meant to be a symbol of God himself meeting in their presence. And in the box were a number of contents, including some, uh, some old bread from the days where they traveled and depended on the manna. There was the staff of Aaron, which had budded. And there were also the Ten Commandments. So there was the Ark of the Covenant in this particular Holy of Holies. And suddenly the writer says in verse 5, well, we're not going to talk about it. We don't have time to talk about it. So what do you make of the fact that he's given us this little snapshot photo in chapter 9, verses 1 to 5? Are you going to say, well, that's just a little piece of weird Old Testament history? And I want to say to you that this Old Testament tabernacle says something very clearly and very simply, and that is that if you want to relate to God, if you want God in your life, it has to be on his terms, not on your terms, because like it or not, the God of the Bible, that is the God, has restricted access If you think you can relate to God as just a bloke walking up to a bloke, you're absolutely deluded. Even your logic tells you that the God of the the universe, the God of the Bible, is infinitely powerful and infinitely perfect. It is impossible to just march up as though you and he are equals. And the Bible tells us, and of course all Jews, all Christians, and all Muslims would be reading this Old Testament that you actually will find it impossible to approach him because of his perfection, except if you follow his safety procedures. Now, friends, this is completely foreign to the world that we live in because the world that we live in is completely clueless about the Old Testament and about the Scriptures and about the Word of God. That's why the world is so casual and foolish and deluded. Most people in the world think that God is either non-existent or he is disinterested in us or he's desperate for friends anyway. And the advice of the world is if you want to relate to God, just do whatever works. Whatever you, whatever you make up, that'll be fine. And God says, my advice to you is nothing will work. 
you'll be in complete delusion unless you take seriously what I say about approaching me. And so it's it's as if God says to the world today, look, you can pretend that all is well, you can pretend that you relate to me, you can pretend that you're in contact, you can pretend that your prayers that are going up, although you have no relationship with me, are fine, you can pretend if you want you've flown to the moon, but you haven't. It's just complete delusion. There is no way to God but the way that he provides. And that's what this first snapshot in verses 1 to 5 teaches. It's very humbling, but it is not hopeless. It's full of hope. Scene 2, verses 6 to 10. This is a film of the Old Testament priests doing their job. This is a slightly grainy piece of black and white film. See verse 6? The Old Testament priests went again and again into the holy place. That's where the daily sacrifices were offered. But verse 7, the high priest went once a year into the Holy of Holies. This was the major national sacrifice, once a year by one man in the Holy of Holies. Now, there were two problems with these sacrifices. Verse 8, as long as the Old Testament priests were doing their earthly work, it is obvious that Christ's heavenly work had not come about. The other problem, verses 9 and 10, the Old Testament sacrifices were very limited. They couldn't reach the conscience. They were just external rituals. They were authorized by God, of course. They showed the seriousness of sin. Yes, they did. But if anybody was conscious of sin with a heavy conscience, these animal sacrifices never really brought deep peace, deep forgiveness, or deep peace with God. They were symbols of forgiveness, not actually providing the forgiveness. And so this little piece of historical film in verses 6 to 10 shows the priests and the high priest of the old covenant doing their work, but it was all just marking time until a real saviour would come who is Jesus, and he would enter the real temple, which is heaven. Now, we do need to be careful not to throw out this Old Testament as if it's all just gory Old Testament history and therefore miss the point that relating to God did in those days need those sacrifices and now needs Jesus' sacrifice. And so we must treat God as he tells us to treat him and not treat him as we think he will be happy if we treat him that way. John Chapman used to tell a story of being at the morning tea and having somebody coming towards you with a cup of hot liquid and a big smile on their face and pushing it into your hands and saying, I've made you some black coffee. And you say to yourself, I hate black coffee, but I do like white tea. And so you say, well, actually, I like white tea. And they say, well, never mind, I've put in four sugars for you. And you say, that's very sweet of you, but if I drink that, I will puke. (laughs) And the person has come to you with great sincerity and eagerness and goodwill, but they just have not ever asked you you what you like and what you want. And the scriptures say, why don't people, instead of just 
pretending that they can treat God the way they want to actually work out what he says about the way he is to be related to. And these old verses of 6 to 10 on the work of the priests tell us that there is a way to approach him and it needs to be God's way. So that's the second scene. Now the third scene in our film is verses 11 to 15, and this is a film of the work of Jesus. Before we look at it, I want to remind you about tents and temples in the Bible. Does everybody know this? In the days of Moses, he put together a tent. The tent was with the people as they traveled through the wilderness. When they got to the promised land, they eventually built a temple under Solomon in Jerusalem. That temple eventually got bulldozed by the Babylonians. Seventy years later, they came and they rebuilt the temple. And then in about the time of Jesus, Herod the king replaced the little temple with a huge temple. That became the third temple. In 70 AD, the third temple was bulldozed by the Romans. So there was a tent for the desert and there were three temples in Jerusalem. One, two, three. This letter is written before the third temple was bulldozed. But the third temple, great as it was to look at, was completely redundant because Jesus had come and done his work on the cross. Well, if you look at verse 11 and 12, you'll see Christ entered the heavenly temple because he'd done his work of shedding his blood on the cross. He entered the heavenly temple because he'd done his work shedding his blood on the cross. So his sacrifice absolutely fulfilled and superseded all the Old Testament ritual. And his sacrifice was vastly superior to any animal sacrifice because his sacrifice was voluntary. An animal was involuntary. Christ's sacrifice was loving. There was no love on the part of the animal. Christ's sacrifice was rational. There was no rationality for the animals. Christ's sacrifice was successful. The animal sacrifice was just symbolic. So the writer tells us in verse 13 that the animals provided outward answers, but verse 14, Jesus provides inward answers. It's only faith in Jesus which will bring to you new birth, new life, so that you are made new to serve the living God. Do you realize it is absolutely essential to turn to Jesus who died if you're to get eternal life? I couldn't say that more clearly. I couldn't say that more simply. If you want eternal life, you need to put your trust in the one who died, and he will give it to you. You remember when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and there were many Jews present, he said, when you turn to Christ, you will receive forgiveness for your sins and the Holy Spirit. That's where the new life will begin. Well, friends, the old covenant only pointed to this. The new covenant delivers. For those of you who like to look at the detail of the text in verse 12, 
There's a very interesting detail in verse 12. We're told that Jesus didn't enter glory with his blood. He didn't ascend into heaven and take his blood with him as the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with blood because there is an important distinction. Jesus had shed his blood, which means that he could enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, this work of Jesus has massive implications. I want to mention two this morning. First of all, let me say something about buildings. If I could put it like this, the most important building in Christianity is heaven. Our buildings are very important. We give thanks for our buildings and we are grateful for this great rain shelter. The most important building and the building that we ought to get excited about is heaven. That is the building that Christ has entered, and that is the building that his people will one day enter. And I tell you, as you know, that that building will make all our buildings look very, very ordinary. The building that we ought to get excited about is heaven. But the church buildings that we build do say something about the gospel, or they say nothing about the gospel. And it's worth asking what this building, for example, says about the gospel. You can see that it's a classic English cruciform building. So we have the long Uh, center aisle and then we have two little chapels at the side so if you're looking at it from the air it's built in the shape of a a cross but as you sit in the pew and as you look forward if it were not for this lectern on which I'm behind which I'm standing and this platform on which I'm standing what would you be looking at well the, the design of the building is that you will look straight to the table behind me or what some would mistakenly think of as an altar So this building you see has limited helpfulness in communicating the gospel because there'll be some who'll come and sit in the building and they are looking straight to the table or altar and they may be drawing wrong conclusions about Christianity and especially if they think the person up the front offering communion is offering some kind of sacrifice. And so what we have done is to stick in the very middle of your eye line uh, a platform with a lectern because we want people to look to the Bible, to the scriptures, so that people will know exactly why they've come to hear from the living God. Our buildings say a lot about us. The second thing is we know that when Jesus died on the cross, he tore the curtain down that was in the temple so that we could have access to God as our Heavenly Father. But do you realize that he also tore down a curtain inside your own heart? So he not only took away the barrier between yourself and God and myself and God, but he also reached, as it were, into our very heart and tore down the curtain of unbelief. So he enables us to repent and he enables us to have faith and then he gives to us all the blessings that come from his death. And because you see God has done this wonderful work through Jesus of tearing down the barrier and tearing down our unbelief, he is obviously a God who relates to us keenly and warmly and lovingly and with initiative. And I think we ought to be asking ourselves the question, how am I going to grow in responding to that? Why am I so wayward? Why am I so reluctant? Why am I so sneaky? Dear God, please help me. If you've broken down the barrier so that I'm in, in relationship with you, and if you've broken down the unbelief in my own heart, please help me to incline to you and to warm to you and relate to you and draw near to you. We must be praying that for ourselves. Otherwise, we have the blessings of relationship with the coldness of bad fellowship.
So the death of Jesus, you see, brings very important consequences. Scene 4, verses 16 to 22, this is a little brief documentary on blood. First, verse 16, the writer says there needs to be a death. I think the plain meaning of verses 16 and following is the writer is using the analogy of death bringing the benefits of a will. A death gets the will moving. There are many fine commentators who think that the writer is still talking about covenant here. I think you have to do a lot of somersaults unless you recognize that he has slightly changed his tack, although it's the same word, and he's talking about, do you realize that if a will is to be distributed and the estate is to be distributed, there needs to be a death. So there's the first thing we need to know. If you want to get the blessings, there needs to be a death. But you'll see also, if you look at verses 19 to 22, there needs to be blood, because blood is the pouring out of the life. Blood is the death that somebody pays. Now, friends, have you ever asked yourself the question, why the church goes on about blood such a lot? Why do our hymns talk about blood? Why does the New Testament talk about blood? Sometimes it can seem a very sort of gory and strange and even sadistic discussion. But the point the writer is making is absolutely essential, and that is blood tells us that something significant has been paid. We have a wooden cross on the left of the building there. It's been lifted out of the battlefield of World War I, out of Poziers in France. And if it was blood spattered, you wouldn't walk past it without recognizing that somebody had paid a significant price. And of course, to wash somebody of dirt with water is quite cheap, but to wash sin with blood is expensive. And God has set the price for forgiveness at blood. Somebody must not be set free if you are to be set free. And because Jesus was not set free but died, you're able to be set free. And blood is absolutely essential. And that's why verse 22 should be one of those verses that we all know off by heart. Without blood... There is no forgiveness. But because the blood of Jesus has been shed, there is great forgiveness, real and wonderful forgiveness. And you must preach this to yourself because many of you I know find it difficult to believe in forgiveness. And so there is still a part of you which is working in some kind of moral gymnasium to get God to relate to you. But the forgiveness does it all. And you must preach it to yourself in all its freedom and all its fullness and all its power. Imagine God was to look at you and say, no forgiveness for you. I'm sorry, we've checked, we've checked our resources, we just don't have forgiveness for you. It's being withheld. There's none for you. It's a devastating thing to hear, isn't it? But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that because Jesus died, there is full and free forgiveness forever. A man called Craig Sherborne once wrote an essay which was called Unforgiven, and it related to the fact that he'd married a girl who subsequently 
discovered that she had breast cancer. And as the breast cancer got more significant, he lost courage. And like a coward, he ran away and he left her. And when eventually he was contacted and told that she had died, there was a note attached to the message which said, you are to send no flowers and you are not to be at my funeral. So the word from the grave was no forgiveness, no forgiveness forever. But the word from the grave of the Lord Jesus, if I could put it like that, says forgiveness, absolutely free at Christ's expense, full, covering everything, past, present and future and forever. So it doesn't really matter what you've said and what you've done and where you've been, it can be forgiven when a person turns to Christ and takes hold of the forgiveness which he died to bring. And we need to preach that to ourselves. The last scene, verses 23 to 28, is a preview of what is to come. We've looked at the still photo of the tent. We've looked at the grainy film of the priests. We've looked at the film of Jesus dying on the cross and entering up into the real heavenly temple. We've looked at this little brief documentary on the blood and the importance of blood. And now we come to the last section, which is a preview of what is still to come. And you'll see it in verses 27 to 28 that Jesus Christ will one day be seen. Back in verses 23, 24, he now appears in heaven. Verses 25 and 26, he once appeared on the earth, but 27, 28, he will one day appear and be seen. So he appeared on the earth and died. He now appears in glory and intercedes for us. He will one day appear and he will bring with him salvation. Everything we've been waiting for will come when we see him face to face. When you believe that his death, which is in the past, was for you, his salvation, which is in the future, is for you. The death is behind you. The judgment is behind you. The salvation and the future is in front of you. Now, I want to suggest to you that instead of beating yourself up on this particular message, I was listening to a talk recently and the person was basically berating the congregation and saying, believe it, believe it, believe it. Why don't you believe it? Why don't you believe it? And I think that's a heavy burden. I think it would be better if you and I this week ask the Lord to help us to grasp the significance of what Christ has done more deeply that it would penetrate us more wonderfully, that it would flow from us more helpfully. I think a lot of our fellowship would be blessed if we were grasping what Christ has done for us and therefore who we are. A lot of the fellowship in this church is just plainly too selfish. People who come and go, it's me, it's private, But the death of Christ for us has brought us tremendous blessings, tremendous fellowship. We're part of a very precious family. We need to illustrate and demonstrate. And I think it would be good if we prayed on a regular basis that God would help us to grasp the depth, the height, the length and the breadth of this love of Christ which has been shown to us at the cross. Do you realize, friends, we're the only people, this is absolutely true, we're the only people in the world who have a good news message for the world. 
The atheist has no real message for the world. The pushover God believer has no real message for the, for the world because the pushover God is as corrupt as we are. The unapproachable God, there's no message for the world with the unapproachable God except do your best and hope for the best. But the Bible-believing, gospel-grasping, Christ-trusting believer has a message for the world which outlasts the world, is better than anything you'll hear in the world, and it all goes back to what Jesus has done for us himself. So let's pray that we get it. Let's pray that it impacts us. Let's pray that it overflows into our fellowship and into the world. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for communicating to us under the old covenant, especially under the new covenant. We thank you for sending your son into the world and for all the blessings that come from his death on the cross. We pray together, Father, that where we fail to grasp the significance and the reality and the weight and the value and the treasure, you would help us to grasp it more and more. We pray that you would save us from being those who value and treasure unworthy things. Help us to value and to demonstrate and to communicate the great riches of Christ. We ask it for his sake and in his name and that we might be a faithful, fruitful people. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.